0: The next worship leader in waiting. You saw him hold that mic with one hand. He's got it already. Appreciate that, Eileen. Appreciate the fruits of your labor in teaching your children how to praise and worship the Lord as well. What a blessing it is. Thank you, Chantry. Look forward to hearing some more, buddy. Well, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. We are actually going to be in the uh, in the Psalms this morning, having completed our book of Proverbs study for our communion series, communion Sunday series. I like to do something a little different for communion Sundays, so we're going to stay in the realm or the genre of poetry, but we're going to go from Proverbs to Psalm and see how the Lord would feed our souls out of the Psalms for these particular Sundays. Uh, I'm not going to go in any particular order, just for your information, just going to be kind of random there. And I think by the time we finish all 150 Psalms, it'll be 20. No, I'm not going to I don't have any intention of covering every Psalm. We'll we'll be in here for a while, but no, we're not going to do all 150 Psalms. And so it will be random. But there is a theme to the Psalms, and that's why they call them the Psalms. And the overall theme has to do with praise. And Kevin opened up with a with a psalm this morning, praise the Lord. Why do you hear praise the Lord, praise the Lord so much in the book of Psalms is because that's what it is. That literally, it is a book of praise or a praise book. That's what the book of Psalms means. <clears throat> so it is a, it is a, there, there are books written with the sole purpose of extolling or worshiping God. Now, if you look at your bulletins, I have entitled the series God Tunes just to be relevant because we are a culture that is all about their tunes. You got to have your tunes. And, you know, in my day when I was a kid, if you were really cool, you had your tunes on your shoulder with the box, the jukebox or what they call it, the boom box, the boom box. You know, it was this big. And the louder the better, put it right up. And people would, I never did it, but people would actually carry their boom boxes, their tunes on their shoulders. Well, now you're more sophisticated and you have, uh, A- Apple offers you iTunes. Uh, scripture offers you God tunes. So we're going to do the God tunes this morning, but you can have your earbuds and all kinds of things. People don't go anywhere anymore without their tunes in some form Or fashion, whether it's an iPod or your phone. So tunes are very, very important to us today. And music and tunes have been important to every culture, really, since the beginning of time. Now, a psalm, basically, it's a writing or it's a composition with the purpose of being composed in such a way that it would be sung in connection with music. So you have the lyrics you have a singer and you also have instruments with these. And there are certain signal, signals sometimes written in the Psalms to cue people, cue choirs or cue the music director. And so it is not just solos, but the idea is that you would have instruments there as well. So they're not, although we read them and study them, they were written to be sung, so I'm assuming that if if I knew who, if I knew Hebrew, that these would be written in such a way that that would be easy for you to sing in the Hebrew language according to the music of that day. It would be hard for us uh, to copy that. What we do today is we take the same lyrics and we put them to music according to the music that our culture likes, or hymns, and so forth. So, but that's the idea behind the Psalms. Which means that music really is very, very important to the Christian believer. Very, very important. Music has always played an important role in being a person of God and experiencing the Lord. We studied not so long ago a little bit about marriage and Adam and Eve. And it is said that when Adam spoke his very first words about you are my bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh to Eve, that it is in poetic form. And some scholars say actually... It's, it's uh, in singing form, so he may have sung those words out of the great express joy that he was experiencing in that time. Now, the primary instruments for this day in the day of the Psalms, which is primarily around the time of King David, about a thousand years before Christ, uh, they didn't quite have electric guitars then, but they did have mostly stringed instruments, so psalteries. Harps were, you know, ping one kind of one string at a time so you can hear the notes very clearly. We see that in movies today. You don't hear a lot of that kind of music today, but they also use cymbals. So if you fell asleep with the string instruments, the cymbals would come out and the worship leaders would wake you up with the big cymbals to make sure that you were engaged with worshiping God. Now, though this book is a compilation of many songs, it is considered one book. It is the book of Psalms. And the psalm that we are looking at this morning will be Psalm 195, but that's singular. A lot of times we make the mistake of saying, please turn your Bibles to Psalms 95, when it's in essence, it's one song, it would be Psalm 95. So, please turn your Bibles to Psalm 95. We're going to read the first, actually all 11 verses, and talk about worship this morning. What does it mean to worship? Just get an idea from this particular psalm and the psalmist's heart. How can I worship the Lord? What will God speak to my heart this morning in these holy words? Psalm 95, beginning with verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is going to kind of give an overview of this psalm. I could spend weeks in it. This just deep, deep theology there. But I want to kind of take an overview since we're going to be focusing primarily on worship. Worship really speaks to the heart. Uh, Music, I think, is intended uh, to pluck the strings of the heart, if you will. Emotions are a huge part of worship, and that's what we're going to find in this. So I want to see three things pertaining to worship this morning taken out of this psalm, and that is uh, worship moves the heart, changes the heart, and warns the heart. And so... Since we're going to be talking a lot about worship, it would be helpful to have a working definition. Well, what do we talk about whenever you hear that word worship? Well, we know based in this psalm and previous teachings that there are generally two aspects involved in worship. So when you hear the word, you want to be thinking of these things. First, it has to do with ascribing value or worth to something. And secondly, it has to do with bowing down. So... The reverence part. So think of value or worth, but also submission. Those two aspects come into play when we worship any object, really, or anything. Um, For some reason, the church today has defined worship primarily as praise. And so we'll talk about we're going to have our church service and we have worship at the beginning or worship at the end meaning our praise time but we know really that worship is all inclusive And for instance this worship service everything is designed for us to worship the Lord from beginning to end we worship the Lord and it's brought up many times by the guys who do the announcements um, we worship the Lord through giving we worship the Lord through praise and prayer so we don't want to just think that Worshiping is singing songs to the Lord or praise. That's just one aspect of a life of worship. So worship involves the whole life and your whole lifestyle. This entire service is a worship service because we can be ascribing to God great worth and submitting our hearts to him in every aspect or every Event. So just want to kind of clarify that, but we need a working definition to apply to our times of praise. We just sang a song. It was an opening song for our worship service. What was going on in your mind when we sang that song? What was happening in your heart? What were you thinking about? What purpose did that one song just play in your experience or your life with God? I think a good working definition for worship is that it's it's ascribing ultimate value to an object uh, and reverently engaging your whole being in the process. So you are engaging your entire self, your whole being in this process of ascribing ultimate value or great value to an object. Because it's, in other words, because it's so valuable to you, you're giving your whole self to it. You're putting your whole self behind it. If it's not very valuable to you, you know how things are to us. If it's not very valuable to us, we might just give a little bit of ourselves to it. A little portion or nothing at all. But if it's really, really important and valuable to us, we're going to give our whole self. To it, And that's why worship should really move the heart. It should change the heart and it should warn the heart because it engages the entire person. We'll talk about that this morning. So to show you where you're going, just kind of like a mini sermon, and then we'll go back and unfold it a little more closely. For example, verses one and two, it's going to teach us that. Our body, our soul, and our mind, or our mind, our will, and our emotions. All of that is involved in worship. Verses 1 and 2. First thing we're told is to come. And it is a command, but it's just as much of an invitation. The psalmist is saying, come. Here's an invitation. Here's an opportunity for those of you that love the Lord to come and extol your God. Now, one thing I appreciate about this church family is that I think that Uh, We have a heart for worship by God's grace, and we a lot of times we're just waiting for. Well, we like also have a heart for fellowship and like to talk a lot. So when you get here, we we talk, but we're just kind of waiting for the worship leader to either start playing or call us to worship sometime. And when that happens, most of the time, everybody's ready. You know, you come. I appreciate that about you. You come ready to worship the Lord. So this is an invitation to come and worship the Lord. Um, and it is a corporate invitation. But notice what he says. I, come and worship. And what he says in the first two verses have to do with engaging the emotions. Shout for joy. Sing joyfully. So it's an appeal for our emotions to engage with God As we worship. In other words, we are to feel things. It elicits this. We are to feel something when we worship God. There needs to be a balance, as we will see. But our emotions are an important part of worship. But it's more than that. It also involves the will. Look at verse 6. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, he's our God. We're the people of his pasture. What is that appealing to the will? Because bowing down is an act of submission. When we bow down, as we engage with God in worship, we are submitting our wills to him. We are saying, God, you're the king. You're you're the, the creator and I'm the creature. You have every right to speak into my life. I You're God. And you have every right to, to anticipate that when you speak into my life, I'm going to hear you and act on it. Because I'm created for you. And so it's that bowing down process. How many times do we come to a worship segment or praise song and in our minds we are also, we're, we're joyful Perhaps or we're emotional in some kind of way, but we're also bowing our hearts to the rule of God in our lives. That is a very important part of our worship. It's what it means as defining true worship. It's a bowing the knee. But when I thought about come, let us bow down before the Lord. My mind immediately went to that verse in Revelation where. Scripture tells us that there's going to come a time in history. It's not yet. There's going to come a time in history where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And I, then I started to see that in light of worship. And I thought, if that's going to happen, if every tongue will confess, that it's not a forced confession. I don't see anywhere where we're led to believe that at at, you know, at gunpoint or knife point, you're going to be, confess Christ as Lord. It is a willing confession. So there's going to be, come a time when every human being will bow the knee and, and acknowledge the superiority of God. And acknowledge His Godship or His Lordship. So, those that have resisted God their whole lives are finally going to see Him in His beauty His grandeur, his goodness, his warmth, a taste of the mercy and grace, all of that which they had been rejecting their entire lives. They are going to say. I guess there, there will be some kind of illumination there and then cast into outer to the outer darkness. That in itself is is torture. That in itself to realize what you you denied and rejected your entire life, and the promises of eternity in that kind of presence, and then to be cast away from it based on choices, willing choices. Um, I cannot imagine, but every tongue will confess and every knee will bow sooner or later. We have the opportunity to do it now before we reach the judgment seat of Christ. Every time we worship or engage in a praise song, it's an opportunity to bow our hearts and and name him as the God that he really is. Not generically, but personally reigning and ruling over our hearts. So it involves the emotions. It involves submission, bowing down. Um, it, part of me wishes that we could. Pace or set our seats a little farther back between the rows so that during our worship time, if we felt so inclined that we could just kneel before the Lord of God, our maker. I wish we had enough room. We, we don't. However, just a reminder that the altar is always open. And I know it's a little awkward because we all stand when we worship and you might have to move around to get somebody. But if just if you you have the freedom at New Covenant Fellowship during our times of praise, if you th- Think that you need to just come and bow, literally bow your body before the Lord, please do that. You have that freedom. The altar's open or the aisle, whatever. That's a scriptural thing to do. <clears throat> Emotions and will. And then we also have the mind that's to be engaged in verses seven and eight, and that's the warning part. If you hear his voice, do not harden your your heart. So the, the, the voice of God goes out, we have revelation, we have the promptings, promptings of the Spirit, and our mind is processing all of this. It comes through the mind. We have to think about what's being said and ponder it, weigh it out. And the hope is that we will, of course, uh, our, our will will obey that and submit to it. But first we have to consider it. Think deeply about it, the voice and the words that we are hearing so that we can make the right choice. So, we're being called during our time of worship to engage the mind, think about the lyrics that we're singing, maybe dialogue with those. Are they true? And if they are true, where do I stand in light of the truths that I am saying? How much do I really think this is true about God or about myself? We aren't to ignore the truths. As they enter our ears and into our minds. So it's the whole being is to be engaged in our time of worship. So now we're going to unpack these in a little more detail. Moving the heart. The psalmist says, Come and get emotional if you will. When we read the psalms, you're going to see about every, well, you will see every emotion known to man in the psalms. There's tremendous grief. Sometimes there's tremendous weeping, sometimes just despair. God, you're not there. How do I worship a God that I don't even think is there anymore? I don't know what happened. Where's your presence in my life? I feel like I'm doing this thing on my own. And then other times he's just he couldn't be happier. And all of these emotions are a part of the Christian experience. You, I'm sure, have already experienced the array of emotions. Emotions are a good thing. They can be misguided, but they come from God. God experiences joy and he wants us to experience the joy of the Lord as well. He wants us to be blessed in that way. So our hearts and souls as a part of worship, joy is on the table as well as weeping. We might. Experience great grief during a time of worship. Maybe we just experienced a tragedy in our lives and we're still wrestling with God. Or maybe just the evil that we read about in the headlines these days. It seems it's non stop, issue after issue. Our hearts might grieve over the evil, the tragedies. And then we might weep and grieve over the evil in our own hearts when we realize, oh my goodness, I am a part of this. I add to the evil, I add to the tragedy of the story of mankind because of the sin in my own heart. It's a very appropriate thing to do during our time of worship. And then we might just be uh, oozing with joy as we think about the grace of God applied to our predicament of sin. We think about the cross and how Christ has covered it and how he has us on this uh Trajectory of eternal life and peace and harmony. So emotion. For whatever reason, it seems like the path that our worship has taken in the churches today has landed us in a place where there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the worship team or the worship band or whatever you call it, the worship leader. Because the, now we have full-fledged bands and, and really loud sound systems And um, sometimes a showier type of worship, a lot of pressure falls on the band or the worship leader uh, to do things right and to bring the worshipers to a certain emotion that they want to feel. So a lot of people, it's been a tough week. The mindset is it's been a tough week. I just want to worship the Lord. And um, the pressure is on the band. I I hope you you sing the songs I like because I really need to be uplifted. And I hope you sing them to the tempo that will, will lift my heart. And that's really puts a lot of pressure on the worship leaders and, and, the, and the musicians. I think undue pressure. because um, It's, it's kind of like setting them up for if, if you don't play my worship tunes in the way that I like them, then I, didn't, I just didn't worship God. And I wanted to worship God, but because you didn't pick the right songs this Sunday... Or started that song wrong, I didn't worship God, I walked away with a disappointing experience. That's too much pressure for a worship team or band. The responsibility to have a heart of joy falls on the worshiper. We are to come, there's the invitation, and we are to have the joy in our hearts. What's it based on? The joy is based on the greatness of God. For we serve a great God. He, he, we are the people of his. He's our shepherd. So there are reasons for the emotions there. There are facts and truths that we'll get into. This important part of uh, of worship is to sometimes get emotional. Now, I don't I'm not one to. We have different people here and some of you are really good at displaying your emotions like you keep them right here so everybody can see. What you're experiencing, you really can't even hide it if you tried. You're just that kind of person. Generally, I'm more of a subdued person. I just hardly even know how to get emotional. I mean, just great news could enter my ears and I'd be like, that's wonderful. That's great. That's about as emotional as I get. I try, I really try to to climb out of that. So, you know, we have to just, it's not a pressure for everybody to be a certain kind of emotion. But within our hearts, you know what it is before your God. You know what it means to be an emotional. Maybe some of us need to tone it down and maybe some of us need to amp it up. But it moves the heart. We don't want to have the emotion without the facts. I remember that a friend of mine at Bible college from Africa, he was a pastor, Philip Mutate. He came and he said one of his biggest concerns for the churches in Africa was that their emotional, their worship was very, very lively, very, very emotional. He said, but they don't engage their minds. They are getting... Uh, they love the emotional part of it, but they don't really pay a lot of attention to what they're actually singing. You could almost put any kind of lyrics in there and they would just move with it and go with it. And I'm afraid that they could very easily be led astray doctrinally because of the hype there. So the mind needs to be engaged there needs to be this balance. And then there needs to be the submission of the heart as well, because we can get emotional And we can have a great time of worship, whether we were weeping or filled with joy. And it doesn't really change us for the long run. If you ever notice that, that emotional experience don't usually don't bring forth lasting change. And so a lot of times you look at Christians, you think, man, you're the most lively worshiper in the church. And yet. I haven't seen hardly any change. The fruits of the spirit. Your character is like the same since you came to Christ. What's with that? Well, the emotion is there, but not the submission of the will. It's that practicing of the submission of the will that brings forth the changing character that God wants. So it it is a, a balance. We have to think and use our minds as well as our emotions as we get these truths down into our heart. I like what Francis Frangipane said. He said, if we do not believe God cares about us, we will be overly focused on caring for ourselves. If we feel insignificant or ignored by him, we will exhaust ourselves seeking significance from others. So you see how important when you come to worship and sing your songs before the Lord, what we believe is and and to the degree we believe it. So we can sing lots of truths, but what degree do we believe it when we sing it? One of the things that I like about music and one of the purposes that it has, I think, is it just drives truth down into our hearts. It's different for you to hear me speak this psalm or preach this psalm, but when you sing it, sometimes it's repeated and it's repeated. It's like it just drives that truth and that doctrine and it gets it into your, your whole being. And that's one of the. Beautiful things about worship and belief together. It's kind of like um, Philip Killer gives this example. Say you're on a path and you have a huge boulder in the way. How do people deal with rocks or boulders that are way too big for equipment and machinery? Well, they use dunamis or dynamite. And there's two different ways you can do it. You can take some dynamite and you can kind of stick it there in front of the rock and get behind and light the fuse. And it's going to blow and it might blast the, the front end of that huge boulder out of the way. But it doesn't get it completely out of the way because it's too it's too big and strong and stubborn. What they do, if you really want it out of the way, is they drill down into the center and into the core. Then they pack the dynamite in there. Then they get back and they light the fuse. And when it goes off now, it's just you just you just graveled your driveway with that. And when you take God's truth and worship, we don't want just the surface emotion. There's no lasting change. It it didn't really do anything. We want to let it come down into our core as deep as possible. That's where God really does his work. And that requires our emotions and our mind. And our will. It changes us. Really, true worship changes us, which brings us to our second point how it changes our hearts. So, how does this happen? What are we getting emotional about? As I mentioned in verse 3 and then again in verse 7 For the Lord is a great God and King. So, the invitation goes, Let us worship the Lord. We want to have hearts of joy. We're going to sing joyfully. Because God is just so great. The psalmist is just thinking about the greatness of God. And he's likely reflecting on the greatness of God in his life. So he's coming with this joy. And he's thinking about, Lord, you, you, you saved me. You delivered me in this situation. And I think about the time you saved me and delivered me here. And, Lord, you took me through this hard trial. And I was want- and grumbling and complaining. But when you brought me out the other end, I was closer to you. It was a good thing. So the whole Christian experience With God is being reminisced during our time of worship because God has been great in your life. He has done great things in your life, and there are many more things in store for us, and we want to be thinking about that when we sing our songs to the Lord. That's the reason that it changes our heart It's because of the greatness of God, and we can get emotional about that. The excellencies of God just spill forth in the form of joy. That's worship. Our hearts change because of the greatness of God. We are ascribing value. We're we're, we're allowing ourselves or giving ourselves opportunity to see God for who he really is. When our mind grasps that. And we're, we're putting the distractions away from us. Then our hearts want to worship our hearts want to change our hearts want to bow and follow this great king because he's so good. And does wonderful things in our lives, so our mind is engaged, our will is engaged. C.H. Spurgeon says knowledge paints the portrait of Jesus, and when we see that portrait, then we love him. We cannot love a Christ whom we don't know. At least in some degree, if we know but little of the excellencies of Jesus, what he has done for us and what he's doing now, we cannot love him much. But the more we know him, the more we shall love him. What is that? It's an appeal to know God. It's a, it's an appeal. Are we studying God's word? Because in it are the treasures of God revealing his goodness to himself and his character to himself and if we deprive ourselves of that how big is our God going to be and we can only worship him to the degree that we see him or know him well you've heard this many times we uh, we have been created by God to be worshipers. so we're going to worship something it's not either you worship God or you don't worship anything although some people think that's true if you're an atheist or agnostic I don't worship anything it's not true we all worship something because that's how we were created. God created us in him, his image for his glory. The first commandment is you have, shall have no other gods before me. What is he saying? Here's what's going to happen. If you take your eyes off of me, you're going to worship other false gods and other false things and other false objects. And that's exactly what happens in the history of man. So don't have any of those. Keep your eyes on me. The idea is this. The thing that we love, the thing that we value, we're going to give our lives to it. We're going to build our lives around it. We're going to give it our energies, our emotions, our mind. We're going to make sacrifices for it. Whatever is of great value, we give our hearts to it. Here's the catch when it comes to worship. It is that object or those objects that are shaping us. That's what is shaping our life. It it, it looks the way it does based on the things that we value the most. And the the goal in our worship is that we are seeing God in such a way that we are giving our lives. We're giving our hearts to it. And it has the lasting effect of shaping us. You, You probably heard before that. The word worship is the old English word comes from worth ship. And the worth part is pretty self-explanatory, means it's something that we hold in great esteem. The ship part, what does that mean? Well, it literally means to shape. So worth shape. Basically, the thing that we are ascribing worth to is shaping our lives. And we need to know that when it comes to worship. What is, what is it that we value and what is our pearl of great price, so to speak? And the first commandment reminds us if we take our eyes off of God and we no longer esteem Him in a way that He desires or that we were created to do, something else just takes its place. And whatever it is, it's false. So we want to keep God's glory, God's splendor. In the forefront of our mind, how do you do that practically? How do you keep it there? It's that daily discipline of prayer, meditation, reading the word, being uh, renewing the mind according to the truths of God. So that we are seeing every day in the light of God. If we don't, we're going to start seeing it through our own perspective and life's going to start to stink. We're going to start feeling sorry for ourselves because life isn't going the way we think it should go. When all the time, we need to be refreshing God's word and be reminded that all things have a purpose. God uses the good and the bad to change us, to shape us. So, when it dawns on us how great God is, that's what changes us. And that's why worship is so crucial because it's shaping us into something. So, we are shaped by our tunes. Whatever kind of, by the way, whatever kind of music that you constantly feed into your ears, you are being shaped by that. Don't think that you can escape the effects of culture if we're going to, if that's what we're going to drink in. The whole intention is that it shapes us. It changes the way we think. And our tunes will do that. God tunes will change us as well. I like what Luther said. The reason we break the other nine commandments is because we broke the first one to begin with. If our eyes are fixed on God alone, we're not going to lie about something because we want it so bad. We're not going to commit adultery because we want something so bad. See how that works? We're allowing God to shape us and it filters down into every area of our lives. And as we continue to study Matthew, we're going to hear this truth constantly that our problems come from what our heart is treasuring. Or the goodness comes from what our heart is treasuring. It's about the heart. And then lastly, a warning to the heart. He says in this psalm, and this is written in in um, prose. They were singing this. It's a warning to themselves. Do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof Though they'd seen my work for 40 years, I loathe that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest right there in this song is a little history lesson that we don't want to forget. And that it's possible for. Those that say they follow God, these people were following God from Egypt into the promised land, never made it. But they were following God. They never entered into his rest because all the words and the affirmation and the revelations that he gave to them through his great displays of power, they ignored it. They took their eyes off of God and all they could see is what they didn't have. And they grumbled and they complained. And God says, I loathe. That generation. And they didn't enter my rest. And we can spiritually apply that. According to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 says. Our hearts are still on at rest. So here's the picture. Here's what they had to do. As they wandered in the wilderness. And God kept them in the wilderness. Their whole lives. Until they died in the wilderness. And this is what their life consisted of. They were living in transit. I mean every time the cloud moved. They got to take the tent back up. They got to pack all the pots and pans back they got to get the kids ready again then they move a little bit then they set up and it's a pain can you imagine having to do that your whole life Um, and of course there are nomads even today in the middle of east but this is you you were subject to god when he moved we don't know how many how frequent that was But the idea was that they were not at all at rest. They hadn't nested. They couldn't just finally come say, "Ah, we're home and put their feet up on the footstool, you know, and just relax. That's what the rest is saying. You're just wandering. You're carrying your junk from place to place, place to place. Spiritually, Hebrews four says there's the rest that remains in Christ. And what happens is this when we don't focus on God and engage in him with our whole being. We maybe were we have other love objects. We're just carrying our burdens. We're just carrying our false gods. We're carrying our sins and we don't have rest. We just carry them from here. Life gets bad over here. We pick them up, carry them over here, pick them up. We're, we're looking for the, in the wrong places, looking at the wrong things. It might be our work, our position. We want it to deliver. We want it to take in. Us to that place where our heart and, and soul can feel rest. It, it doesn't fulfill the promise that it made to us. So maybe this position, this career, this reputation that we want, maybe that's what will bring great worth to my heart, rest to it. And it never comes. But then the gospel comes to our weary ears. The gospel of grace. And that's where we can find our rest. When God says... You need to end your life. You need to submit it and bow the knee and let me let me be your I'm God. Why not be your God? I'm the good ruler, I'm the good king. You lay this down. I take care I'm the burden bearer. I take care of these things. Jesus Christ, the gospel says he came and he died for you. He paid the penalty for our sins at a great cost, at an enormous price personal price he paid for our sins he gave up everything and suffered incredible for the joy that was set before him it's an interesting concept as we close now and think about worship for the joy that was set before him that means that there was a joy and you say but god has everything there was a joy that christ did not yet have And it was the joy that was set before him. For that reason, he endured the cross. What is that joy? To to redeem people back to God. The joy of watching us be set free from sins. The joy of watching us come faithfully Sunday after Sunday and give our hearts to him and apply our minds and learn new things and bring them home and be salt and light. The joy of us just singing and uttering from the heart and meaning it to the living God. He endured the cross for us so that we can worship him freely. He did that. When we see God in that light and we understand how much he treasures us and desires uh, to be among us and in us and to put things right, then. We see God in that light and we worship him in spirit, in truth. First, Peter two nine says that we are a people for his own possession. We see that infinite Christ, that infinite Christ. We make him our treasure. So as we worship the Lord this morning, as we partake of holy communion, let the truths of God just be driven into our hearts. Let us engage our whole being Sunday after Sunday, not just today, of course, engage our whole being. What emotion do I need to feel before the Lord this morning? What part of my heart needs to bow down and what am I listening to? What am I thinking? What kind of choices am I making? That's where worship takes place. According to Psalm 95, God wants to minister to us. As we worship him. And praise him. So come Lord Jesus. Come. May God bless the preaching of his word. And now we have a great opportunity to extol our God.